So when we come to Jesus, sometimes he says things that it just doesn't make any sense. Like we go, I'm missing something. There's something, something not right with me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with him, but there's something I'm not grasping. Other times he says things that are so incredibly clear that even a child could get it. Where we left off with Jesus was in Matthew chapter 11, in some of the sweetest, most clear, most concise, most beautiful words we've ever read. So we got to start there, because this is Jesus being as clear as possible. And today, he's going to explain those verses through an interaction with the Pharisees. So look with me at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We talked about how those words don't go together, a yoke being easy and a burden being light. Jesus says, I am your source of rest. I am the place you come to. So right off of this, Matthew tells us a story, remembering that in the book of Matthew, the writer is putting stories together to show us a picture of what Jesus is like. He doesn't claim that this is chronological order. He doesn't claim that this is the exact way things happened, other than that they did happen, and he's put them together to illustrate something for us. So chapter 12 is Matthew continuing what happened in chapter 11. And today we get to have the fun Sabbath conversation. There's only a little bit of debate on that word, isn't there? The word Sabbath is the last day of the week, which is Saturday. The Jewish culture, Jews to this day, Orthodox Jews, do not lift a finger on the Sabbath. It is a day that is meant to be holy. So why are we here on Sunday? Why was this place not packed yesterday? And the answer for that is, is the early church early on actually celebrated both days. They did Saturday in the synagogue, and then on Sunday they would gather and remember Christ's resurrection. Based on the teaching we see here today and some stuff written by Paul, the early church switched to Sundays as the day to stop and remember what Christ had done. Our founding fathers and our, our, our American culture also couldn't figure out what day to have the Sabbath, so we did both days, Saturdays and Sundays off. Praise the Lord. I wish they'd go like, we don't know what day was Christmas. Let's give you a whole week. <laughs> Unfortunately, they did not do that. But the two-day weekend, we cover both. So where did this Sabbath come from? Before we get into this passage, we need to understand where Sabbath came from. So Teach your hat on for a second. I'm going to show you in the Bible where it came from. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. After God had created everything, God so blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That word holy means set apart, different than all the rest. Because on it, God rested from all his work and all that he'd done in creation. Now, some people misunderstand that and they go, oh, God stopped doing stuff. No, if God decided he wasn't going to hold the universe together, it would cease to exist. So God is always holding this together. So what does it mean that he rested? Well, if you remember, at the end of day six, he said it was very good. And one author I was reading said, what God did at 
the day seven, his rest was to stop and reflect and to appreciate what he had created. That word very good is to take a lot of pleasure in what you've just done. And so that very good in day six spills over into day seven, and God is sitting there and going, wow, look what I did. Look how glorious this is. Now, God can, you can say God is being prideful there, but being prideful means that you think you're the best. Well, God is the best, and so he's allowed to do that, and it's not a sin. And so he sat back and he admired what he did, the completeness of it. Now, to help us appreciate it, a little ways down the road, God chose a group of people named the Israelites. These Israelites went to Egypt. You know the story. They're in Egypt and they're in slavery and they're in bondage. They had no rest for a very, very long time, for generations. So the first thing God does after he pulls them out is he says, here's my law. And one of the laws we find in Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He says, this is a day set aside. It's a set aside day. Now, what are we to do on that day? This is just a negative. Well, in Deuteronomy, which also gives this, this guideline, we see an extra little sentence, and it's in Deuteronomy 5.15. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, because of what I've just said, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So he tells us what we're to do on the Sabbath. We're to remember what we came out of, right? So that the Israelites are to, on the Sabbath day, they are to stop and go, you know what would really stink right now is if we were slaves. You know what would really be awful is if we were still in bondage, if we were still under the sway of the Egyptians. And so they were to stop and reflect on that. And for us as believers, this is our picture of what the Sabbath is to look like. The Sabbath is to be a day where we stop and go, praise God I'm not where I used to be. Praise God for what I came out of. And that's to then flavor our entire day. Now granted, some people will say, well, you're supposed to do this all the time. Yes, but God also wants us to do it with no distractions, like work, having to do things. Isaiah 58 tells us a little more about this. The prophet Isaiah says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So what Isaiah is bringing out is that picture of what is God doing? We're to be like God on the seventh day, and we're to delight in him. So how did we get to this, these verses that Marnie just read? Well, what happened was this was written by Moses and then Isaiah and other prophets talked about the Sabbath and the purpose of it. But over time, it became a religion. It became rules. And there was this group of people known as the Pharisees. Pharisee is a Hebrew word that means those who are set apart. So 
those who are holier than you, is what their names mean. And these Pharisees started making rules about how not to do something wrong on the Sabbath. And so they came up with 39 rules. Actually, I'm sorry, 39 categories of rules with sub-rules and sub-categories. Here's a couple of examples. Tailors were not allowed to carry a needle on the Sabbath because they might be tempted to fix a piece of a garment. Nothing could be bought or sold. You could not dye or wash your clothes. A letter could not be sent, even by a Gentile. A fire could not be lit or extinguished, including lighting a lamp, so you had to plan ahead accordingly if you wanted light the day of the Sabbath. Baths could not be taken, and all the kids said, yay. (laughs) Not because cleaning was work, but because if you spilled the water, it would hit the floor, which is washing the floor. Chairs could not be moved because your chair just might make a furrow in the ground. And that's what leads to planting because that makes a lot of sense. Here's my favorite though. This goes for me because, and you'll, you'll hear why in a second, but a woman was not allowed to look in a mirror lest she find a gray hair she must pull out. <laughs> uh, that's what the scholars said. That wasn't me. I find that when I pull my gray hairs out, they come back in like threesomes. It's bad. (laughs) So we see this, and and we, we hear this talk of the Sabbath, and we need to understand our default is not much different than the Pharisees. We hear the word Sabbath, we hear keep it holy, keep it set apart, and we start going, can I do this? Well, what about that? Can I go out to eat? Do I have to stay home? Can I watch this? Can I not watch this? Can I go for a hike? Can I do this? Can I do that? What if I'm somebody who has to work on the Sabbath because I have a job that requires? What do I do then? How do I, how do I, right? And see, what's interesting here is the passage that we just had read, Jesus says, yeah, you know, if you're hungry, you can eat on the Sabbath. Yeah, you know, if you're worshiping, you can do that. If someone needs mercy extended to them, do that. And so what's interesting is some New Testament scholars have said, here's the list of things you can do. And all that's done is that's taken what the Pharisees have done and turned it into a positive, but it's still the same thing. We want a set of guidelines of what we're to do or not do on the Sabbath because we want to check it off. And we miss the entire point. We miss exactly what Jesus is teaching here. And I got to tell you, the first few times I read this, I was thinking, oh man, This is my first Sunday back with you guys after a month of rotating around, and I'm going to smack you all over the Sabbath. They're not going to want me back. They're going to be like, can we get someone else? But praise be to God that there there is a Holy Spirit and that this Holy Spirit is alive and well, and that he was able to show me in this passage what we all need to see, what I need to see. Because see, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is reorienting us to the Sabbath. He's saying, let me introduce you to what the Sabbath is because our tendency is to get it wrong. So we're going to see in this passage that there are two questions that Jesus is going to answer. Is it lawful to harvest on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus doesn't just go yes or no. Instead, Jesus goes, actually, I'm going to use those questions to teach you about the most important thing, and that is me. He says, I'm going to teach you about my character and who I am. So we're going to see three truths that Jesus is going to lay out for us. 
So let's start in verse 1. Is it lawful to harvest on the Sabbath? Verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So right there, I mean, we know where this is going. We've already heard it read. This is going to be a Sabbath discussion. I think they got the wrong S word. This is a stealing discussion. I mean, the, the, the disciples are walking by, and they go, hey, look at that. There's some grain. And they steal it, and they begin eating it. So why do the Pharisees not make a big deal about stealing? Well, the answer is, is that there was a rule in the Bible about this. And what it said was, do not harvest the outsides of your grain field because someone may go by who's starving and they need to be able to eat. It's the same thing. If you think about Ruth, the story of Ruth with Boaz, right? She's, she's out there in the fields and as they're harvesting, anything that falls on the ground, they don't pick up, they leave it there so the poor can have it. It's the same idea here. So the disciples are not breaking any law. Even though at first glance, our you know, 21st century, they're like, that's stealing. Even one grain is mine. But they don't do that. Instead, the Pharisees point out something else. Verse 2. The Pharisees saw it, and they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So I, I love to ask questions of the Bible. And I had the question, what were the Pharisees doing there? This is Jesus hanging out with the disciples on a Saturday morning early, and there's Pharisees going along. And I think the answer here is, is that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They've stationed some of their Pharisees to follow him around, trying to catch him doing something he shouldn't be doing. And they think they have. The Pharisees believe they've caught the disciples breaking the law three times, three ways. Listen to this. First one, if you pluck a piece of grain, so you pull it off of its stem, you've just harvested. There's one law broken. To get the grain, you have to rub it. Rubbing it is known as threshing, right? And then when you get a handful of chaff in the grain, you blow the chaff away. That's known as winnowing. They broke the law three times over. So this is what the Pharisees are holding out. But why do the Pharisees say this to Jesus? Jesus didn't do anything, right? He's just standing there. His disciples are eating. Why did the Pharisees go to Jesus? Well, it reminds me of when I was a teacher. And if I walked into a classroom and the kids are going crazy, hanging from the ceiling, you know, doing things, whatever, and the teacher's over at his or her desk, I'm not going to go, kids, stop. I'm going to go, teacher, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? This is out of control. It's not okay because they are in authority. Same thing here. Jesus is in authority. So the Pharisees go, what, why are you allowing this? Why are you not stepping in and making them stop? Now, you notice Jesus' response. He doesn't get indignant. He doesn't clarify the fact that, hey, guess what? We're not farmers, so this isn't our work. I mean, he could have simply said that, right? And he could have said, ask them. I'm not the boss of them. He could have said all sorts of things, but instead, he stops and he asks them a question. And we see this all the time with Jesus. He asks a question that gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue here is they have misinterpreted what the Sabbath, they misunderstand what the Sabbath is all about. Look at verse 3. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So again, I'm reading this and, and, I, and I go, he goes to the Pharisees, have you not read this? I mean, that's like going to a Shakespeare scholar and saying, have you ever read Macbeth? They, they would say, yes, 
we've read this, they had it memorized. They memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. So they were like, well, duh, of course we've read it. See, I don't think Jesus is being disrespectful here, but he is being bold. He's saying, you need to understand that the Bible says something different than what you are interpreting. Now, the Pharisees, these interpretations have been around for a long time, so maybe they've never questioned them. Maybe we can give them the benefit of the doubt. But when they read Scripture, they should see what the Sabbath is about. This Jesus is not some average carpenter's son from Galilee. No, he is something else. He's the son of God. He's saying, you don't understand. Your interpretation is wrong about Scripture. So he brings out this story of David. This story is found in 1 Samuel 21. And what happened is, is they have these loaves of bread called the showbread or the bread of presence. And there were 12 of them. Each week they were baked by the priests on the Sabbath. Keep that in mind. That'll be important in a minute. Baked on the Sabbath and then laid out on display to show that God has made a covenant with the 12 tribes. After the Sabbath, that week, the priests would eat that bread, and then they would bake another 12 the next week. This was something that happened. David's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. Doeg and a bunch of other people are after him, and David's men are literally starving. And so they show up, and they go, hey, you know where there's food? At the temple. Let's go get some. And David goes into the temple, grabs it, and eats it. There's no condemnation on him. The high priest says, yeah, go ahead, and, that, and that's it. So this is a weird little story. So what is Jesus doing here? How does this connect? Well, one thing, this has nothing to do with the Sabbath. So if Jesus was going to say, hey, it's, it's okay to harvest on the Sabbath, you would probably want him to pick a story out about the Sabbath. But there's nothing about the Sabbath here. Not only that, the conditions are different, right? Jesus and his disciples have just woken up, and they're on their way to the synagogue, probably not having walked very far, because the, sa- the Sabbath, you're only supposed to walk a mile. And so they are definitely only walking a little bit, so the Pharisees don't bring that up. They probably have eaten the night before. They're not on the run. Nobody's trying to kill them. David's men, it says in the Hebrew, were literally starving. They had no food for days. So the comparisons here are not the same. Wrong day, wrong situation, all of it's wrong. So what is Jesus doing? Is he just going, hey, it's a fun story? No, Jesus is bringing something else out. There is a connection, and the connection is one thing, and that is that David is God's anointed. David is God's anointed. That word anointed, that's kind of a weird churchy word. Well, it gets worse because the, the Hebrew word for it is Messiah, another churchy word. This means this is the one that God has chosen as his person. You remember David, right? David's not the king. Saul's the king. But God has said, Saul, you are no longer my king. I am anointing David. David is God's anointed. So Jesus is saying, David is the anointed. I am like David. And my disciples are like David's men. See, Jesus is saying, you guys don't get to decide what to do on the Sabbath. God's anointed does. I do. I am here because I am greater than David. Not only that, I'm not just greater, I'm the true David. David is not who I'm like, David is like me. David takes the showbread, the high priest gives it to him because he's the anointed king. How much more is the true king, Jesus, supposed to get? So our first truth is Jesus is the true and better David. 
He is the true and better David. There's no other way that this story fits. There's no other way that this example fits unless Jesus is saying, David is who I am better than. Now verse 5, Jesus says again, Have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So let's follow the logic here. So David is the king, but there's more to it than that. How do we go from David the king to the priests? Well, we go, well, this is about the Sabbath. No, it's not about the Sabbath still. It's about the priest part portion, and I'll show you why. David was something different. David was what we call a priest king. This controversy here is Jesus showing the Pharisees that he's the true priest, and we only understand this if we see David rightly. So let me show you another story about David. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 6. This is a longer passage. I'm going to read it. I'll point out a couple things to you. So the context is the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the thing that Indiana Jones found, right? That thing has been stolen, and now it's on its way back to Jerusalem. And David is so excited about it, he can't help himself. This is what it says. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs in him because of the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So first off, he goes and gets the ark. The priests are the ones that are supposed to get the ark. Now, he probably had help with it, but he's in charge of bringing it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. So Obed-Edom's house is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's working his way into Jerusalem. And as they're going, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, kill an animal. One, two, three, four, five, six, kill an animal. You thought the Oregon Rose Parade was long. <laughs> this parade is going to be days because it says he's slaughtering an, axe, an ox and a fattened animal. So David is doing the sacrifices that who gets to do? The priests get to do. Now keep going. David danced before the Lord with all his might. He was wearing a linen ephod, also what the priests would wear. And so David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of horn. At the ar as the ark of the Lord came into the city, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Also, how it's described what the priest does in the temple. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Also, what the priest does. And then distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins. Then all the people departed, each to his house." So we need to see, David is not your normal king. Not only is he a king, but he's also in the place of priest. And so Jesus is making the connection here. He's saying, I am a greater David. I am a greater high priest. But so that we don't miss it, look at verse 6. He throws in this random phrase, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Where does the temple come from? How is it that the temple enters into this discussion? Well, it's because the temple was God's place on earth. It's the place where God made himself most known. And we know that the temple was also a restricting thing. You couldn't just go, I don't want to go talk to God. I'm just going to go into the temple. You couldn't do that. 
It was restricted. It was mitigated. You had to have someone go before you to the temple to do business with God, to deal with your sins because we were so sinful. The first temple was in the Garden of Eden. And then when we got kicked out of that temple, out of God's presence, God kept us away at arm's length. The temple and the tabernacle was us coming a little closer. Jesus is saying, I am the way that God is making it so you and me can come together. Because the temple's whole purpose was so that we could be with God. The law that requires the priests to profane the Sabbath, which means to do work on the Sabbath, was the same law that required them to do all sorts of things on the Sabbath day. Every Sabbath, the priest would be in charge of burnt offerings and drink offerings. Not only that, they were the guards of the city. I didn't know this until I studied this passage. But the priests would actually go and stand at the gate with swords drawn to keep people from coming out, lest the guards have to work on the Sabbath. They guarded the king's residence just to make sure robbers didn't sneak in on the Sabbath. So they were working this entire time. And the reason why, was, the reason why it was not profaning was because it was built around the temple and letting people come to God, being able to interact with God, limited though it was. So Jesus is saying, you need to understand, not only am I a greater David, the true David, not only am I the greater temple, I am the true temple. I am the way that God is bringing himself to us. So our second truth is, Jesus is the true and better temple. He's claiming to be a new and better temple. Jesus taught this throughout. He taught that this new temple would expand throughout the world. After his resurrection, he says, not only that, not only is it that I came and gave this new temple, but I have died so that you can be many temples, M-I-N-I, temples, small temples. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. So when we gather together like we are in this room, we are gathering together lots of many temples in order to glorify God even more together. Like at Christmas, you know, one of my favorite things at Christmas is lighting the candles, right? And we light that first one, and it's just a little bit of light, but then when everyone in the room has them, the room is a light. That's what our gatherings are to be. Now, it gets even better than that. Fast forward to the end of the book, get to Revelation, And it says, there is no temple. Why is there no temple? Because at the end, God will now live with us. There is zero keeping us from him. Not only has our sin been eradicated, but now he is in our presence in a perfected new earth, new kingdom. What a cool picture that Jesus is giving us here. So we see two Old Testament illustrations. Jesus is a true and better David. Jesus is the true and greater temple. And this points to his point. Now, see, the Pharisees think they are the ones in charge of this discussion. They don't learn. We don't learn, right? Let's be honest. They think they're running this conversation. This whole conversation, Jesus is going, I'm going to get to my point, and my point is verse 8. But he starts with verse 7. He says, if you'd have known what I mean, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he quotes Hosea 6, 6, which actually is quoting Jeremiah, which is quoting Psalms, which is quoting Psalms. It's this quote that goes throughout the Old Testament, this I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
See, the Old Testament has been very clear that it's about your heart position towards God, not the actions that you do. God had to repeat himself over and over again, and Jesus is just repeating the same thing again. Jesus is not saying that if I have compassion, it cancels out following the law. Instead, he's saying that compassion is the point of the law. It's to make sure that I have mercy on those who are around me. The Sabbath was meant not to rest from the law, but to rest by showing the compassion that the law demands. Jesus is saying, I am above the law. When he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm above the Sabbath. I am the interpreter. I'm the one that gets to decide what this says. So it's amazing to me. Again, Jesus could have just said, you're wrong and walked away. But instead, he's still teaching these Pharisees. He takes the time to explain himself. And these are the biggest thorn in his side. I mean, these are the people that are coming after him, and they're the ones that are going to instigate his murder. But yet he still gives them the opportunity to hear the truth. Then it says, for the Son of Man. That word for gives us the clue that this is the conclusion. This is what Jesus is getting after. He's saying the Son of Man is the one with authority. This carpenter, this rabbi being followed around with a ragtag group of guys has the authority to determine everything, including the Sabbath. He's not reversing the fourth commandment. Instead, he's saying, Pharisees, you get it wrong because you forget who the Sabbath points to. The Sabbath, the law, points forward to Jesus. So our third truth is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Maybe even better, he is the goal of the Sabbath. So now the Pharisees are like, all right, okay, game on, let's go. You say you're Lord of the Sabbath, let's see how you do with this question. And I think in their minds, they're like, oh, we got him. They say, he went on to the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then I love that Matthew puts in, so they might accuse him. Now, if I were Jesus, which that's not even close, but if I were Jesus, I would do what Aslan from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe did to the White Witch. If you're not familiar with the story, Aslan is there and the white witch is the, the bad baddie in the story. And she comes up and she says, the deep magic. And he goes, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Liam Neeson does a better voice. But um, <laughs> that, that's what I would have done. I mean, at this point, you know, Jesus has got to be going, oh, really? You don't get it. He could have done that. But again, look at Jesus's Look at Jesus' kindness. And we'll see this even more next week when we get to the, the quote from Isaiah. They're setting a trap for him, and Jesus is still patient with them and responds. The Pharisees are going, okay, if he says yes, that you can heal on the Sabbath, then that means all the doctors and nurses and physicians whose job it is to heal, they can work. So guess what? You just broke the law. But if Jesus goes, no, you can't, they can go, what's this mercy baloney you just were talking about? So Jesus is either a lawbreaker or he's a hypocrite. They think they have Jesus cornered, but you're going to have to be a whole lot more cunning to try to trick Jesus, to trip Jesus up. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's going to display it two ways, one with his answer and then two with his power. Watch this. The Pharisees are saying, you can't heal. So what would Jesus' response be here? If he was going to respond to this guy what would it have looked like if the Pharisees had got their way? Jesus goes to the withered man and goes, hey, you know, 
that's, that's too bad. I'm sorry. You know, I, I have the power to heal you, you know, but I can't do it today. As soon as the sun goes down, I'm right over here on First Street. Come see me, and I'll, I'll heal you. I mean, that's what the Pharisees are asking him to do. Instead, Jesus responds with simple common sense because the Sabbath is not a show-off day. It's not to show off how holy we are. Instead, it's to glorify God. Look at verse 11. He said to them, which one of you has a, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I love this. He, he just takes a simple thing. And he says, you are the ones that are the hypocrites. If you have a sheep, and many of these people would have had sheep. It's not as foreign to them as it would have been to, as it is to us, right? You have a sheep, and it falls in a hole. Now, let's be honest. Sheep are really dumb. They're incredibly dumb. You can YouTube this, but there's a picture, of, there's a video of a sheep that's jumping around. It falls in a hole. They pull it out, and you know what it does? Jumps around and jumps in the hole again. <laughs> See, the sheep didn't fall in the hole. The sheep probably put himself in there for the fourth or fifth time. Let's be honest. And don't forget, we're compared to sheep. Different, different sermon. So he said, you have a sheep that fell in a hole, you're going to pull it out, but you won't do good for a man? You won't help a human? A stupid, silly sheep? I almost said a bad word right there. (laughs) Stupid, silly sheep. Or a person made in the image of God. Which one is more valuable? And they would, of course, say, well, yeah, of course, man. Well, then why wouldn't you do good to them? Jesus is saying, pulling the sheep from the pit is not breaking the Sabbath. It's keeping the Sabbath. It's compassion. The Sabbath is about rest rather than oppression. The Sabbath is about peace and relief, not about formal law keeping. So the Lord of the Sabbath says, it is right to do good. Now, interesting there. He doesn't say it's right to heal because then they could have used those words against him because that's what physicians would have done. He says it's right to do good on the Sabbath. Not just any good, but all good. So Jesus has answered them, and now they have nothing to say. And now he's going to say, not only do I have an answer for you, but I have power to display for you. And so we see this is an extra point. Jesus proves he's the Lord of the Sabbath. All through the book of Acts, whenever, whenever some uh, apostle teaches something, they always accompany it. The Holy Spirit gives a miracle to show what they're saying is true. And Jesus does the same here. Look at verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him and how to destroy him. That word, the withered hand, it means deformed. It means not made like it was supposed to be. Not healthy, not right. His hand was not what it was supposed to be. Isn't that the state we find ourselves in before we meet Christ? We are withered. We may think, compared to the rest of the world, we may not be as withered as other withered hands. But that's what we are. Nothing can heal this man save the Son of God. Jesus heals this man. This is how he heals us. He says, I am here. I have the power. Put your faith in me. Reach out your hand. Now, this man could have said, you know, I've had this my whole life. It doesn't work that way. No, he had to have faith in the one who told him reach out the hand, and he reached out, and he was healed. So if you were to ask this man, where does your relief come from? 
The Pharisees and their laws or the Christ whose yoke is light, whose burden is easy? Which, which is it? Is it the rule keeping or is it the one who saved you? Now, we don't know about this withered man, a withered hand man. He could have followed Jesus at this point. But what we see is he does put his trust in Jesus. Now, look at the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him. Now, I'm not an expert in the Sabbath or the Sabbath law, but it seems to me conspiring to murder somebody on the Sabbath might be breaking the Sabbath law. Maybe. Maybe that's, that's the 40th you know, category they need to add. But these Pharisees are going, Jesus has done unlawful things. Even at this point, they miss it. This guy is a member of their synagogue, their church. He's had a withered hand his whole life. He has suffered because of it. And he's been healed. And instead of meeting it with joy, the Pharisees go, we hate Jesus. We hate him for what he's done. And really, these are the two responses that we have to Christ. Are we going to stretch out our hand with faith? Or are we going to go, no, I hate that. I hate him. What's your heart's desire? Are you being drawn to Christ or are you resisting him? If you are resisting him, you are a withered hand sitting there going, no, I'll earn it on my own. I will do it myself. That's saying, I don't want you, Jesus. And that's as bad as the Pharisees who are saying, destroy him, get rid of him. For those of us who are in Christ, don't forget we were that withered. That's us. We did not earn the salvation that we have been given. Worship him. See, the point of what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, for Israel, I know David's not that big of a deal for us, right? Neither is the temple. It's not that big of a deal for us. But what he's saying is, don't miss the fact that this day, this time set apart, whether you do it on a non-work day, on a Saturday, a Friday, or together here on a Sunday, this day is a day to stop and go, praise God. God, I know where I was, I know where I am now. I have a king who's better than the best king who ever lived. I have a temple. I have a place to go to God. I have a king over the Sabbath who says, your rest is in me. Rest in my salvation. Going out to eat isn't going to do it. Going home to watch the football game isn't going to do it. Taking a break and having a day of rest where you stay home and just focus on self isn't going to do it. He wants every single day to be focused on him, but especially one day a week where we go, ah, oh, Lord, yes, your salvation. I once was withered, and now I am what I'm supposed to be, one who's in contact with my God. We can only find that rest, real rest, the rest that Jesus promised us in chapter 11, 28 through 30. We can only find that rest in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you are the source of our rest. Lord, I don't know what that's going to look like for each of us and, and how exactly we'll express that today. But Lord, I pray that it would be the focus of our attention, that we would want to rest and reflect and delight in your salvation. 
Delight in your creation. Delight in the work that you did. Whether we do that through eating good food, whether we do that for reveling in creation, however it is that you want us to do that, I pray that our focus would be on how you have done the work and then how we respond to that in worshiping you. Help us to worship you every day, but help us, help us to especially worship you on our Sabbath. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for these words. In Jesus' name, amen.